Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Net Rocks, episode 1387, with guest Corey House. Recorded Monday, November 28th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And um, what can I say? Uh, you know, the chit-chat evades me today. <laughs> I, I, I went looking for uh, Better Know Frameworks early this morning. And what, oh, I, yeah. what I mean by that is, you know, things that I can highlight on the Better Know Framework segment. Sure. And I fell into this rabbit hole that uh, turns out to be such a time vampire, but uh, also very, very enjoyable for your geek brain. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Why don't we just roll the music and I'll talk about it. Okay. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Have you ever heard of D3 in JavaScript parlance? No. What are you talking about? So this is a free library, uh, and it's called D3, Data Driven Documents. Oh, okay. And it's at d3js.org, or, you know, because this is show 1387, 1387.pwop.me. And it's a JavaScript library for manipulating documents based on data and helps you bring to life this data using HTML, SVG, and CSS. Hmm. So it's all free, and it's based on web standards. And when you go there, there's this really cool, explorable grid of hexagons, it looks like. And each one of these brings you to a different web page where you can test out these visualizations. And I got lost for hours. No kidding. In here. Just playing with all these different ways to visualize data. Are you looking at it right now? I am. Do you see the one that's mostly white, but it has what looks like some orange, blue, and green marbles at the bottom along yeah, the yeah. collision the detection? Collision detection? Click on that. Wow. This is JavaScript. Yeah. And, we, and you, when you do collide with them, they, the balls fly around, but. Generally, they're avoiding you. Right. You're basically, when you move, you, there's a bunch of balls and they sort of clump together. And when you move the mouse, you disrupt them. And then they sort of reform some quickly, some slowly, and they they recoagulate. And you can basically just move, move them around and manipulate them. Maybe 30 lines of JavaScript. That's unbelievable. Lovely. It also just shows how fast the GPUs are these days that the, br- the browsers have access to. Yeah. But this is just so, na- it's, it seems so organic and it's JavaScript. Absolutely. That's so, super cool. So this is something that, uh, and this is just, you know, a nice little graphical tool, but there's so many little pieces of this and so many visualizations that you can use, not just in uh, data visualization, but in user interface in general, mm-hmm. I'm finding. Well, anyway, you'll get lost in there for hours, and and uh, I want to hear from some people who have used this and uh, who have heard me and downloaded it and checked it out and used it in a project. Let us know. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. Rocks at franklins.net. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off show 1189, which is the last show we did with Mr. House back in September of 2015, talking about React.js. Mm. And this comment uh, about a year old now from Scott Wagner, who says, I loved Corey's emphasis on components as a mechanism, not only just for reusability, but to compartmentalize things so that you can reason about the code you are working on without having to keep the entire system in your head all at once. Yeah. 
which I, I think that was one of the strengths of React, right? It's just that, that componentization. Absolutely. I find myself thinking about variable scope and side effects more and more these days. I think you can get a cream for that. Uh, <laughs> I tend to spend much more time maintaining code than writing new stuff from scratch. And when a seemingly small change to one part of the system can have ripple effects all over the place, it is always tedious when you have to carefully check everything and error prone when you don't. Yeah. After hearing Corey talk about the component as something that accepts a well-defined set of inputs and yields deterministic output, I wasn't surprised to find that he'd been studying up on functional programming. Yeah. Adding in the discussion about using inline CSS to further restrict the component to a clean input and output mapping, it starts to sound suspiciously like those pure function things that FP advocates wax poetic about. But in reality, it goes beyond functional programming principles or web components. Take away some of the web-specific details, and you guys could have been talking about any well-designed, loosely coupled system. As always, great stuff, not just on React.js, but programming in general. And speaking of React, I'm afraid you've got me really intrigued. Hmm. I've been on a bit of a hiatus from trying to keep up in the web space lately. It's just too much, too fast. Hmm. But after listening to the show, I think I might just have to jump in and check out React. Oh, crap. As soon as you think you're out, they drag you back in. Drag you back in. Yeah. Mr. House, if you're reading this, please take a moment to imagine me staring into the sky with my clenched fists held high, shouting your lame Wrath of Khan style. Ha. House! <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so that's a successful show, right? I think that's the one. When they make you that. scream at the sky, you've done something right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Scott, obviously, Corey responded to you at a time. This is a year ago now, but I'm responding to you now. Thank you so much for your great comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Corey reads him. Nice. I don't know if he does or not, but he doesn't read our tweets. Anyway, let's introduce Corey. He is a Microsoft MVP, Pluralsight author, frequent conference speaker, and an independent JavaScript consultant. And uh, in those few words, sums up a lifetime of experience. Corey, how are you, man? Hi there, guys. I'm doing great. Good to be here. Glad to have you here. And uh, have you checked out D3? Have you seen that before? Uh, yes, I have. In fact, uh, on my current team, we are building reusable components uh, in React using D3. And the, wow. I mean, D3, as, as you were talking about at the beginning, is wildly powerful. Yeah. And to me, it's, um, it is a subset of JavaScript that has so many nuances to it that it's not uncommon to see people that specialize in D3. So mm. I've only toyed with it. Wow. Uh, but we have one, one person on my team who is just doing D3 because I feel like it's unrealistic to expect a team of people to be experts in it. There's wow. just that much going on there. Uh, but yeah, so effectively what we're doing is abstracting away D3 using React components so that other people can basically pass in an array of data and a little bit of configuration and get that magic without having to be experts in D3 itself. I love that. And is that something you're going to share? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So you have no idea what your timing is like I know, there. It's great, isn't uh, I mean, it? Th that's one of those other interesting conversations is mm. um, I, I started out with a lot of our stuff being public and only very recently pulled it all back private because um, I'm part of a you know, I work for Vin Solutions, which is a small company nobody's heard of. But mm. if you go far enough up the ownership chain, you end up at Auto Trader and Cox Automotive, oh which are very large organizations. You're talking about tens of thousands of employees. So sure. yeah. along that hierarchy, people decided we should be keeping these things private. So yeah. despite my directors and vice presidents being cool with it, uh, I ended up having to um, stop open sourcing some of those things. Trade which, secrets, which a, man. Trade secrets. <laughs> You're giving them away. Well, it's an interesting conversation because there's this recognition that, you know, whatever code we write will ultimately be run in people's browsers, right, and given sure. it minified, so it'll be pretty hard for them to read, but it is there. Yes. Um, so Copy, paste, download, and use it yourself. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's precisely why JavaScript has um, become such a such a popular place to do open source is right. once you know that your code's always going to be available... Um, readable to anybody you have this open source idea yeah and you really just can't resist it there's no, almost no point point. and you might as well benefit from it by having people contribute to it 
right? But you still do have that whole, the work, you are at work, it's a work for hire, your company has rights over this code you write during work hours. Absolutely. Yeah. For better or worse. So, what are you, uh, what are you working on these days, Corey? Well, so, uh, what has been on my mind the last, really, um, we're sneaking up on almost uh, eight, nine months now, is thinking about starting new JavaScript projects. Because um, just to back up, uh, I work for a shop that has been doing .NET since the days that it was in beta. Um, we have uh, effectively one large application that um, pays the bills for us and has been extremely popular. We write automotive software. Right. And we're working in web forms and ASP.NET MVC, uh, doing a lot of web API. Uh, so plenty of .NET work. But on the front end, we made the decision back last summer to shift over to React. And like a lot of people, the minute that you choose an unopinionated library, life gets very tricky because what you realize is you have a massive list of decisions to make. And sure. if, if you're going to scale very well, it's really impractical to expect all these individual teams to be making what really amounts to, I, I kid you not, 40 plus decisions that, that I've counted down as I started going through all of this. Wow. And it sounds like you're saying those decisions are architectural decisions. Uh, yes. Uh, I, well, I, I would characterize them as architectural. I think JavaScript has become um, complicated enough that you need dedicated front-end architects making these decisions, mm. that it's really unrealistic to expect full-stack developers to have the time to um, think about all these nuances. And in sure. fact, the the way that we're running now um, is interesting. Just backing up for a second. So I listened to Steve Sanderson's uh, show that uh, just published here very recently, mm -hmm. uh, where he was talking about JavaScript services. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed that show. And I, I got to visit with uh, Steve at MVP Summit too. Always enjoy talking to him. He's, um, I, I really admire his, his vision um, and the way that he's looking to make life better for developers. Agreed. Because I think him and I completely agree that one of the core problems right now in, in JavaScript is just feeling overwhelmed at getting started mm. because there's just too many decisions. Sure. Well, this was the comment too, right? Scott oh, was yes. just overwhelmed. Yes. And, and in particular, it's a problem in React. It's a problem in React in a way that um, it's less of a problem in Angular because Angular has, has opinions about HTTP and yes. about testing, about folder structure that, that React just really doesn't. And that list is just the beginning of a list of things that React says, eh, it's your decision. Be yeah, an whatever adult. you want. And some people see that as a blessing. But um, I, I think largely, um, at least in our organization and in a lot of .NET organizations, that's viewed as a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I've been thinking a lot about this, that the reason, at least part of the reason that things like web forms, things like MVC became so popular was because it gave people a very, very clear path about how to get things done. They didn't spend their time spinning their wheels right. on the basic decisions because Microsoft paid a lot of smart people to come to these conclusions and say, here's a recipe that, that really works well. And so yep. people embraced that. But what we're lacking in JavaScript right now is <laughs> that sort of path for most of these things, even especially in React, for instance, there's just this um, overwhelming number of decisions. But it's it's certainly very true in Angular as well. You see seeds out there. Um, it is true when you start a new node project. It's true if you're working in Vue or Backbone or Knockout. Um, things like uh, testing and bundling, minification, uh, automated builds. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're providing guidance for React developers and maybe with some scaffolding. Yeah, so that's that's precisely what we're doing in-house. What we've effectively, um, it's interesting that you use the word scaffolding because I was using the term starter kit, um, mm. but some um, of the enterprise architecture team came out and uh, met with me and they characterized what we're doing as a, a scaffold as well. Now, I will say we're, we're moving more in the direction of, of wrapping everything up in a single NPM package, which I think is a really useful concept for mm -hmm. people. Um, yeah. And the idea being this, that so right now, when you start a new project here in our office, what you do is you, uh, when you start that project, you are effectively cloning an existing GitHub repository. And so you end up with copies of all these files. Um, but there's a, a way to get away from that, which is to simply put all of that behind an NPM package, at which point then you have one centralized package that holds all those dependencies, all the configuration, and is really easy to update. So that way we take our opinions, we put them in one place, 
and everybody can benefit from those. Yeah. So uh, I, this is what I thought was really interesting with Steve's um, uh, show last week was as I listened to him, what I was paying close attention to was what opinions is he taking? Because every time that somebody says, hey, I have this framework, scaffold, seed, boilerplate, starter kit, all those terms to me are synonymous. Right. Anytime somebody says one of those things, they're making a decision for you. And they're saying, Here, here's a bunch of opinions that I'm making. And of course, the usefulness of that decision, the usefulness of what they're offering hinges directly upon whether you agree with their opinions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't these opinions change depending on what the scope of the project is or what uh, type of project it is? Like, can you say if we're if we're just building out CRUD screens, the opinions can be pretty strong. But if we're, you know, building something that's more nuanced and requires a lot more interactions and things, then uh, then it's going to take a, a lot more decisions on the user's part. Bingo. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what you're hitting on is ex- exactly why I feel like it's fairly unrealistic to have a single um, starter kit or boilerplate that's going to be universal mm. um, for for every need. Because what you'll find yourself doing is making compromises, taking on dependencies that, that are either unnecessary mm-hmm. um, or in some cases lacking certain things that other people need. Now, I do think one thing that is generally realistic, though, is in a given organization, if you find that you are consistently working in a technology stack, solving similar problems and building a lot of separate single page applications, I think that's precisely where you can benefit from having a starter kit that is specific to your team. Because I think the the really important thing is there's sort of three ways to think about the JavaScript fatigue that everybody's feeling right now. Of course, one way is to just simply ignore it and say, okay, whenever we do a new app, we're just going to use vanilla JavaScript and we'll solve the exact problems that we need. Um, now, thankfully today, most people say, you know, that that seems silly because why not stand on the shoulder of giants? Right. Why not use these libraries and frameworks that have built abstractions that make life uh, easier for us? Yeah, right. So, so I feel like that first option isn't particularly useful. But if we look at the other two options, the second option is precisely what Steve was talking about, which is here is here's an abstraction that I'm proposing for you. Um, follow these instructions. And behind the scenes, I'm doing a lot of complicated stuff for you. And as long as you like the decisions I made, then life's going to be really luxurious for you. Mm. And I think that story um, makes a great deal of sense for a number of people. Um, But I think it's very important to look at what those decisions are. So when I look at at what Steve's proposing, there's a few decisions that you're making. One is um, the assumption that you'll be doing probably development in Visual Studio for your front end um, versus, Mm. say, VS Code, um, which for me, for instance, I do. I use Visual Studio for all my API work, and I use VS Code for the front end because I just find VS Code to be a more luxurious way to do JavaScript development mm-hmm. today. Here's a technical decision that I can think of right off the bat that um, may change depending on uh, the type of data, the frequency of data, and the how often it gets updated you may choose to, um, you know, download a complex object and keep it in a spa and keep it around and pass it around from, you know, function to function and uh, through different UI and stuff. And then uh, just choose to refresh it occasionally or have, you know, a signal or something, a signal R that refreshes it. Or you may choose to every time that data goes somewhere else, whether it's a piece of UI or whether it's uh, through a function, you know, you, you re-download it. You, you, you go get it again just to make sure that you always have the most up-to-date data. Little things like that can make the difference in performance. And sometimes you have the luxury of being able to do it because you know that you're working, you're the only one that's working on a particular record or something. I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, but sometimes you're in a more... A real-time interactive system where data has to be updated more frequently. Absolutely. And and that, I think, is um, precisely why having a fair amount of power on the client to make those decisions and to build um, uh, a solution that includes what you need and excludes what you don't. Um, And I, I think, you know, part of what you've talked about is 
decisions that may be specific to uh, a given application, a given project. But also, I find organizations often choose up front a given style for doing application development, and they run with that. Mm. So in places where you can set recipes for at least a, a large part of your JavaScript stack, then you're really in a far better place. Because for instance, if every time that somebody starts a new application, they're trying to decide what testing framework to use, where they should put their tests, how those tests will run on a CI server, uh, whether they should be using a, a certain mocking library, these sorts of things, it'd be really nice if we decided as an organization rather than on an individual application. But since JavaScript doesn't have strong opinions, and, and this is just one little area, we can find ourselves sort of bike shedding over a lot of these rather trivial decisions. I mean, the, we think about, uh, is is your application going to be successful because you chose Mocha instead of Jasmine or Jest? No, it, I, it will be likely more successful because you chose a testing framework at all. It's, it's when you choose not to do something because you're overwhelmed at options that you end up in trouble. Hmm. And I, I think I may have mentioned that on a previous show, this this idea of, of decision anxiety, of the, the paradox of choice right. is a really good book that gets to this problem, that JavaScript developers today are effectively choosing not to go to the gym and work out because they're overwhelmed at all the different gyms in town and shoes they could select and which shorts should I wear? Should I do weights versus cardio? And you go, no, just just go to the gym. It's... That's the basics that can be built in to something like a starter kit. The only thing you know for sure is that testing is worthwhile. Yes. So pick one. Yes, exactly. That's the idea. Right. Now, it makes a lot of sense. And it's nice. I mean, it's nice that there is choice, but you shouldn't let choice paralyze you. Mm. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that this opinionated approach to software is getting more popular for a reason because the choices are so overwhelming. That's right. Yeah. Oh, Yes. So I'm sure you guys have heard of Ember and mm -hmm, Ember sure. is really interesting to me because it is the polar opposite of React. And I like hmm. looking at things that are vastly different than those things that I currently know. And Ember has become popular because Ember takes opinions on virtually everything. And Ember, you know how you're going to do testing. You have a command line interface built in. You know how you'll do um, all of your bundling and minification uh, and how you'll place your files, what you'll name those files, and so on and so on. So I think the, the interesting thing that I keep finding is not many people that I know are interested in Ember. Now, I think that primarily comes from the fact that Ember has these ties back to Ruby. And I don't know a lot of people in the Ruby community. I spend a lot of time around .NET developers, not surprisingly. Um, so I, I feel like there's this real opportunity for something that is opinionated as Ember, but that takes opinions that are more um, approachable to .NET developers. So that, that was part of why when I listened to, to Steve Sanderson's show, I was thinking about how much you know he's helping in exactly that problem in a bit of a different way with this open source project. Um, you know, when I, when I talked to Steve in the past, I've tried to encourage him before of how awesome it would be if Microsoft took a really opinionated approach and, you know, effectively took something like Angular and uh, baked in all the opinion and mm. really integrated it in a way with Visual Studio that made it just feel fully first-class citizen. Because uh, uh, that's sort of what Steve's doing with uh, JavaScript services, but he's doing that in a way that is um, out there in the open source and not uh, not leveraging anything proprietary to Microsoft. It is, sure. it is all just uh, open source projects that he's glued together, really um, not much differently than what uh, I've done on my own open source uh, starter kit. He's just choosing to use some um, integrations with Visual Studio with, with NuGet to pull some of those things down and do other interesting things like rendering on the server. Well, and it struck me during that show that what they were really there to do was that if you weren't familiar with these different JavaScript development stacks, they just make it easy for you to get into it so that you could, it's, you know, like, it's almost like it's catering to a group of people who are not strongly opinionated at this point. So you should give them a set of opinions that will help them be successful. Absolutely. And, and I think that that makes uh, a ton of sense because th that's effectively where uh, I found myself was mm -hmm. we as an organization were 
comfortable with moving into React, but also recognizing that we were <laughs> not going to do very well unless we made all these decisions up front for people because we couldn't expect a bunch of individual developers to do it. So right. I love, um, uh, I think it's Derek Sivers that uh, makes this quote about that having strong opinions is useful. And he says it's useful because those that don't currently have opinions can just take your opinion and run with it and see how it works out. Right. Um, and those that do have strong opinions can use your opinion as sort of an, uh, a way to counter their ideas to say, okay, someone feels A, but I really feel B. Yeah, it's a yardstick, a springboard. Absolutely. Yeah. So at the very least, we have something to start with. It's, it's very agile manifesto too. It's here's, here's what I'm proposing, but let's have conversations about this. This is just a starting point that I think makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. It absolutely gets you going with, uh, with just trying to, just trying to get going as quickly as possible, right? It, we're, mm -hmm. we're dealing with this battle of triage. So anything that could help me triage sooner is something I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also think um, one thing that we've baked in that has been really helpful is having an example application. And, and this is something that surprises me that a lot of teams don't have. Um, there's You end up joining a team these days and so often people will say, well, you can go read the coding standards document. Uh, and that gives you some sense of how we write code. But that doesn't um, often give you this nice interactive big picture of, of how we're writing apps today. And so the thing that I like about having a starter kit for your team and having it include an example application is that somebody now has something really tangible to interact with and say, okay, here's how we're naming files. Here's the directory structure we typically use. Here's example tests and how we structure those examples of mocks. I run these commands and this thing happens. We're doing automated deployments with this specific setup. So we have much more, it, it's almost the difference between reading a, a document and looking at a picture. They say mm. a picture is worth a thousand words. I feel like a demo application is worth a thousand words. It's worth even more than just the code that's been typed in there mm -hmm. because it is your team at any given point saying, this is the standard that we want to hold ourselves to. Now, if you go look at a lot of the existing code that we're supporting, yeah, you might find there's not much test coverage in there, or you mm. might find that we're not being consistent with our naming structures, or we're really bizarre about the way we're making Ajax calls. We're doing it in three different ways, and that's unfortunate. Mm. All sorts of things like that happen all the time, and we it makes it really hard for new people to understand what code they can copy and paste as an example, and which is, oh, never do that again. <laughs> that was a big mistake from the past. Right. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to make a few decisions around here. Oh. Paper, not plastic. High octane, not regular. Starbucks, not Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and funny, not .NET rocks. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's a dark place to go. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a complete Music to Code By collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code By, of course, is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive every day with Music to Code By, and now you can download the entire 13-track collection for only $39 and see what all the fuss is about at musictocodeby.net. And I have a story about this. I mm -hmm. now have two customers who have kids on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. And both of them had switched medications to something that kept them up at night and they weren't able to sleep. And now I have two that Music to Code By is the only thing that they can use to get to sleep. At That's night. interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So I don't know. It's uh, it's not a scientific study, but it certainly is is uh, worth checking out. I also know a few kids, not necessarily on the spectrum or anything, that uh, listen to .NET Rocks, even though they're not necessarily .NET people, because <laughs> apparently our voices are soothing. Yeah, yeah. Karen put them to sleep. These kids. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how that happened. Either. I don't know how that happens either. But anyway, I thought that was interesting about uh, about the autism stuff. And you can check all that out at musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Lauren Paulson. All right. Congratulations, Lauren. Oh. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Lauren. 
And by the way, I will be getting back into the studio soon to do more Music to Code by tracks. I haven't done any in a long time. Oh, my. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But Lauren just won the entire 13-track collection, uh, soon to be 14. Uh, but uh, if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and... Nope, it's not this show either. <laughs> <laughs> Every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member hey, of the December? .NET Rocks fan club. It might be December. It is December. It's December 14th as this is coming out. However, mm -hmm. this is not the day. It not may yet. Be, maybe coming up here real soon now. And we also like to ask our guests, Corey, of course, you know, if you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, so I just ran out and spent, well, not quite that much, but way too much. Uh, I couldn't help myself. I had to try the new MacBook Pro with the touch bar because everybody hated it so much. I had to see if it was as bad as everybody described. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so far, uh, the funny thing is, I really love the device, but I could totally take or leave the whole touch bar thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think it may show promise in the future. Uh, I think... It as other people write software for it, it could be cool, but there's this whole issue of looking down at a keyboard to be able to do something that feels counterproductive for a professional. Yeah. Um, I mean, all these years, haven't we been taught get really good at keyboard shortcuts so you mm -hmm. don't look away from the screen? Yeah. yeah. And and that's precisely what touch bar is running against. So yeah, no kidding. It, it's weird. I spent all this money, but I really spent it because I wanted a faster processor and a faster SSD and a brighter screen. But Well, and folks have not been real kind to this latest MacBook either. But you think about oh, no. it, the people that are using Macs now, especially in the developer world, these are command line people, right? They yes. are the keyboard shortcut people. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and, that, and that's where it feels exactly backward to me that, mm. that it would be on the Pro, but <laughs> it's here and it's probably here to stay. This was a big commitment. Mm. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. I, I, yeah, I'm not convinced that it will stay. I, I wonder if it's going to be a failure and they're going to pull it and you're going to, you know, end up with an orphan feature. Like, I, I don't know. Apple's not this company it was. It's not, it doesn't move as certainly. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, I think it's going to be very interesting. You know, they really did get crucified over this particular release. And I don't know that it's entirely fair. I've never been a MacBook guy, but it, mm -hmm. isn't it interesting how times have moved? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also feel like, I mean, right now as a .NET developer, I think it's really fun having the Mac here because what, uh, Visual Studio for Mac was just released yeah. a few days ago. And so yeah. being it's able to toy really with that. really Visual Studio, right? I mean, that is Xamarin Studio. They just mm. cleaned it up, made a little bit, you know, features a little more par parallel. Like they've done some work on it, but it's a different code base. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with you. In fact, I got, um, so I, I thought I'd pretty much said that on Twitter, but, um, <laughs> then some, mm -hmm. some people pointed out to me, Hey, it's not just a rebrand of Xamarin Studio. There yeah. is some Visual Studio, uh, goodness that's been added in. But yeah, from what I can tell, it, it makes sense for mobile dev, but it's, it's unclear to me whether they're planning to ever have a full story there that, that rivals Visual Studio on Windows long term. Yep. Yeah. It's really, it is really interesting to see what happens, but, you know, and the, the kicker is at the same time that MacBook came out, Microsoft released the Surface Studio, which that is a style icon machine in every respect, including the fact that not that many people are going to buy it. Well, yeah, although I will say, you know, people were saying, wow, I mean, $3,000, but you're going, I mean, when you look at how much Apple's pricing, I thought that pricing was pretty reasonable. No, I think it was, it was on yeah. par. It's just, it's got yeah. a set of features that are not for everybody. Yeah, I, I agree. It's an opinionated machine speaking to a level of style sort of beyond what most people have even thought about for a computer. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, I think there, there's probably no denying that it was more interesting uh, innovation than anything that came out of Apple this year. And I, I love seeing that that table turn. I, I keep at conferences, I keep hearing this, that people feel like Microsoft is the new Apple. And I, I love seeing all this innovation and excitement, um, the move to open. There's just, mm. there's a lot of cool things going on at Microsoft right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange. It's strange how quickly that actually has happened. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if everybody actually buys in yet either, but, uh, yeah, part of me wants to order that crazy machine. I, it's just, just to own it, 
Not that I really think the feature shed is something important that I need, but it mm. is it is awful shiny. <laughs> it would look absolutely beautiful out in a, a kitchen or a dining room somewhere public. I mean, it's a piece of art. It is a piece of art, right? And I have a touch screen in my kitchen already. Like, you know what I want? I want the screen. I don't really need their computer. And by the way, like they made some compromises in their computer that I would never make. Like the fact that it's got, um, it's not an SSD in it. It's a hybrid drive. Right. Like what, 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 what? for, for 3000 bucks Load it up kids. If I was going to buy this machine, I want all the toys. Wait, are you saying you can't get a traditional SSD in it? Nope. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, they don't certainly talk about that part, but that's, that's again, it's almost Apple-ish. <laughs> right, that they've, <laughs> that they've done that. Mm. And they're just, oh no, no, we've decided for you what you should have. That's yeah. so cool, though. It is, yeah, it's so, so, so pretty. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I will. I don't care about their computer. I want that screen because that's mm -hmm. a Pixel Sense screen. Yeah, yeah, it's like the rebirth of the Pixel Sense, and that's a big deal. With the dial, yeah. that is, it's a bigger deal than we even realize. It's beyond that one computer. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's important that machine. And the Pixel Sense never had that high of DPI, did it? No, and it, and it wasn't that small either, right? The Pixel Sense mm -hmm. was always bigger than that. So they've clearly that technology, which seemed like an orphan, has come back to life and is resurfacing this other form factor. And I think it's hugely important. So, yep. but sell me the screen. <laughs> right. Oh, do we have to talk about JavaScript? You're I all know, excited about really. hardware there. For <laughs> That's not fair because this is a great show. You know, yeah. and as usual, I've been taking notes as fast as I can, Corey, as you're just spitting out all these different tools that I want to look at, right? Between your starter kit and the testing frameworks and so forth. Like it's, this right. is all comes back to the same core issue of, you know, what's your JavaScript tribe? What's the set of tools that make you happy for building applications? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But you're happily living in React. I am. Although I think that was one of the interesting things as I was putting together my course. So uh, the course, to clarify, is building a JavaScript development environment. And mm -hmm. what I realized was I had to get out of my, my little bubble and look at the big picture and see what are the common conversations that apply for people that are working in Node, Angular, Vue, uh, maybe they're building uh, desktop apps with Electron. There's so many different ways to write JavaScript today. And, and a lot of people are making the same core decisions. So I started looking at just the high level categories of decisions that we make. Sure. Uh, and that, that was where I got to this number of 40 different decisions because we have to choose uh, a linter, um, which if for people that don't know what a linter is, it's a lot like style cop in C sharp, but it's for JavaScript. Right. Um, you, you need to choose a bundler so that you can bundle all that code together and get it out to the web in a way that the, the browser can understand or in a way that node can understand if you're deploying there. Um, you need obviously a story for testing. You need a story for transpiling as in taking the, the original code that you've written, whether that be TypeScript or ES7, ES6, maybe you're working in uh, choosing to work in Elm or one of the other hundred different languages that compile to JavaScript. Right. Uh, you need stories for HTTP. And this, this list just goes on and on. And that's precisely why I think it's, um, it, it was really useful for me because I hadn't realized how many decisions I'd made for the organization as an architect putting this together until I sat down and, and, and wrote all this. And you realize, wow, yeah, the, what really would have happened if we didn't do this, and this is what's happening all over uh, today for JavaScript developers, is a lot of what I just described there doesn't get done. People end up putting right. JavaScript in a script tag, not because they think that's the best way to build an app, but because it's the lowest friction way to get started. Yes. And, and there's, this, there's this missing piece where people forget, um, or it's just easy to overlook, that well, once I do that, then how do I test it? How do I bundle that? How do I minify it? How do I reuse it? I've, I've lost all sorts of really good benefits that mm -hmm. I can have for free if we were just using some kind of a starter kit to get rolling. And, and just making sure that all those decisions are made in one form or another and are not in conflict with each other. Although, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, like, do you run into situations like, okay, well, if you're going to use these three things together, you can't use this and this, it won't work. 
Absolutely. I mean, so, so one example is this uh, TypeScript, which I, I really think TypeScript is super cool. Um, TypeScript solves all sorts of problems for people. But I have heard people say before that there is no reason not to use TypeScript. And I mm. think that's um, an unfair simplification because we have to remember, although TypeScript is a superset of JavaScript, yes, it does take us some opinions that rule out certain tooling. So for example, my favorite linter is ESLint, and that is the pop most popular linter uh, for JavaScript today. Super, super powerful. But um, unless they've just recently announced, they still don't have support for TypeScript. So you need to use TSLint for TypeScript. So that's one example of where one decision that you make ends up making some other decisions for you along the way. Um, and of course, you could go even farther. You could choose something like Elm, which Elm is a functional language that ends up compiling down to JavaScript. And right. I don't Have you guys had a show on Elm yet? Never have. No. Oh, uh, yeah, you should have somebody on. Uh, I'm not the guy to, to speak to it for an hour, but it is super cool. I will say this is the sales pitch for Elm. Imagine that you want to build a JavaScript app, but you want to write in a functional language that is so powerful that it is literally impossible to get a runtime error. Hmm. Wow. Every yeah, error yeah. is like If it'll compile, it'll run. Yes. And that... that just gave me goosebumps when I first heard it at a conference. I said, oh, that, that's good stuff. <laughs> I need that. Talk about opinionated, though. Mm. Oh, yes. Yes, very like that opinionated. That is the opposite of JavaScript right there. Yeah. No, and I see your point. And, and again, when you choose Elm, you're choosing all sorts of other things along the way because sure. you've got to make decisions that are compatible with that ecosystem. So uh, that was precisely what was really fun about putting this course together in the first place was recognizing this decision tree. And, and even one of the hardest things for me was here I have effectively 14 different chapters that I'm walking through. Right. And getting that order right was really difficult because I realized, okay, but this decision, once I make it, then I've precluded these other decisions down the road. So I have to build this up in a way that is um, fairly helpful for people that that up front, you have to make that really basic decision of, do you want to write JavaScript or do you want to write a language that compiles to JavaScript? Because that single decision right there will end up rippling through the rest of your sure. uh, foundation. It almost feels like there's an expert system here, you know, that could just keep mm. asking you questions and keep walking you through possibilities, you know, and, and helping you make all those decisions and maybe keeping a counter in the meantime of how mainstream are your decisions right now? You know, that kind of thing. Are you getting to an edge case? Are you still falling into a well-known set of choices? Yeah. Well, I really like that idea. Uh, and in mm. fact, what you're describing exists for JavaScript frameworks. You can answer a, a I don't, I wish I knew the URL. I'll see if I can Google it so you can put it in the show notes, but there's a website out there that allows you to plug in a lot of different facts about what you're wanting to do, what your team is like, and then in the end, they will recommend a JavaScript framework for you based on those upfront decisions. And I went through it quite a few times making different decisions and the conclusions that they came to, I thought were spot on. They did a really right. good job of asking the right questions because I will tell you, I'm, I'm a big fan of React, but I don't recommend React to everybody. I tell plenty of people, go use Angular uh, once I've heard about their team, what they're doing, what their skill sets are, what their opinions are. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. And I mean, there's a ton of, of pages out there for, you know, trying to pick frameworks. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, the, the challenge once you build something like that would be keeping it up to date. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> you, might, you must have a full-time guy who's just making sure that it's always valid. Yeah. So, well, and I, I like what you said there, because I will tell you this, uh, that's become a large portion of, of my job and the help of a few others uh, at the company is keeping what we're doing up to date. Uh, I mean, you think about we literally have 40 different uh, package references in our package.json. So that's a lot of different libraries that are all moving forward, potentially uh, with breaking changes between each other at any given time. Thankfully, that's pretty rare. Mm. Uh, we don't see a lot of major releases. Most of what we're using is, is fairly stable, but it does happen. Um, so uh, one thing that I found really helpful, um, there's a book that I'd recommend uh, any developer read called The Checklist Manifesto. And Oh, yeah, we've talked about that before. Yeah. Oh, we did? Oh, uh, cool. We didn't talk okay, about well, you. We've done a show around it, yeah. You have on the show. Okay. Well, yeah, so uh, I won't belabor the point, but the big idea in the book is that professionals use checklists and they end up following doctors around and finding that all do though doctors, if you ask a doctor how to put a line in someone, they know that there's a five-step process to do so to make sure right. that somebody doesn't get an infection. Right. So the thing is, 
what they found was if doctors didn't have a checklist, they would end up skipping a step at yep. a small percentage of the time. And then people get an infection. They end right. up in the ICU. Some people die. And I think as developers, we really feel like checklists are um, a tool for amateurs and something that takes away our power. But I feel like um, effectively a starter kit is a living checklist. It's something that is a canonical way to say, here's how we do software development here. Here's how we do JavaScript development specifically. And by sitting there and codifying all of our decisions in code, it makes it all these decisions crystal clear. And it effectively is this living interactive checklist. And that, I think, is a really powerful paradigm for making sure that the all the hard things become not just the easy things, but also the things that we do automatically. We right. don't even think about it. It's just it's baked in. So right. you can't get it wrong. Well, and if, uh, airlines do this, the space program, like, all of these high risk things. You realize that checklists simply aren't optional. But so much of our software, we manifest our checklists as automation. Right. The mm -hmm. continuous integration, continuous delivery is all about taking the checklist of deployment and making it always execute. Right. But you're talking about the early stages where you still trying to figure out your pieces and how you actually want to build things. It's nice to be handed mm -hmm. a checklist, which is really what you're talking about. Yep. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, and e even things like very, very few JavaScript developers today know when their app bombs in production. If it right. throws an error in somebody's browser, they probably are unaware of it unless somebody gives them a phone call, drops them an email. So one thing that's baked into ours is we have JavaScript error checking built in. We use TrackJS, but there's lots of other different uh, software as a service styles out there. You pay a little money and they give you a, a really nice web interface. Uh, all you do is put a line of code on your page and you get that. Mm -hmm. But that's another one of those things that if we expected everybody building a new app to remember to configure it, They'd forget. It just gets overlooked right. in, in the rush to get to production. Yep. Yeah, no, it's easy to overlook those things. Mm -hmm. So somebody's listening, has been checking out all your uh, recommendations in the way that you do things. What do you think the next step is? Well, I think this is uh, a really easy decision. The, the next step for any buddy is to simply set up a meeting, <laughs> send a meeting maker to your team. And this is precisely the challenge that I make at the end of my course, because I feel like the the first step here, like like a lot of things in software is to have a conversation. And that conversation with your team needs to hinge on one simple question, which is, what are our pain points today in JavaScript? And I don't think it will take very long for you to realize, okay, one of our pain points is every time we start a new project, we're forgetting to do certain things that we did on a previous project, or we're spending days upon weeks trying to figure out the basics. So if you have those sorts of answers, that's precisely when I believe that you as a team need to get together and say, okay, let's let's make a decision. Let's go out and look at some boilerplates, some starter kits, um, some Yeoman generators, whatever mm -hmm. it may be as a starting point. And, and with this recognition that you're not making a decision for necessarily for the long term, you're making that first step to say, let's, let's codify some opinions that we have in here. We've decided we'll do testing this way and bundling this way, that these are the core libraries and frameworks that mm -hmm. we're going to use to be successful over mm -hmm. the next year. Mm -hmm. And that, that can totally be malleable. But the thing that lots of people are missing is just that first step of let's have a meeting on the calendar that says our goal is to begin creating a starter kit that codifies how we as a team do development. And maybe that's going to mean that you simply go look at one of the existing starter kits out there. Right. Um, so, I mean, for example, if you are a React developer, you can, you can Google for Andrew Farmer. Andrew Farmer put together a database of all the React starter kits out there. Uh, I wow. put mine out there and thought I had this great idea. Well, it turns out over a hundred other people had that great idea too. <laughs> Wow. So it just shows how great it is. Over 100 different subjects. Yeah. But, but what you find is this. He allows you to search by tags. So you could say, okay, I want one that renders on the server. I want one that includes routing. I'm looking for one that includes Redux versus Flux, uh, Babel versus TypeScript. All of those, those are important decisions. So what you can find is as a team, once you've made all those decisions, you could probably find a boilerplate that is 95% of what you need. And then take that, make it your own, and tweak it a bit. But now you have this great way to move forward as a team. 
Yeah, that sounds good. And as you said, it's malleable. It can change, but at least you start the conversation. Yes. Yes. And at least you start much farther down the road than you were before. Yeah. Well, that sounds good, Corey. Where are you going to be speaking soon? Uh, I am looking forward to CodeMash in January. Will I uh, see you guys there? Probably not. We no. uh, we won't be there this year. But We got uh, to be in London like the week after and back-to-backs are hard. <laughs> yeah. So a friend of mine, John Mills, is speaking at both and he's going to immediately fly to London. I, my wife would not have gone for that. So yeah. Well, and plus you're taking this big gamble of being in Sandusky in the winter time and needing to get back to Cleveland at an appropriate time. Like that's risky stuff. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. You, you can't underplay that because I always wonder if I'll get to Sandusky at all. Yep. And then <laughs> once you get there, will I ever get out? <laughs> Welcome to Hotel California. Yeah, uh, that's right. And the, who knew Hotel California was a big water park? Yeah. <laughs> very cool. All right, Indeed. Corey, thanks very much. It's been enlightening. Thank you, guys. This has been a lot of fun. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm